0: Welcome to season seven of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful. So please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the dharawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the Elders past and present of the Darawal Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Today, I have a special episode for you with a good friend of mine, Daniel Yong. Daniel is a passionate primary school teacher, watch collector, poet, and fitness enthusiast. I've been following Daniel's work for many years now, and I'm always left intrigued with his stories about his class and the ways that he seeks to innovatively engage his students. I hope that you get as much out of our conversation as I did. Please enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so
1: much for taking the time. Hey, going? Going good, Matthew. Uh, thanks for inviting me and letting me share my my teaching story and who I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, no problem, mate. Any time. I mean, we've known each other for a while, and it's just great to uh, get to have a chat. I mean, until relatively recently, we worked um, in sort of a pretty similar area, um, yeah. and so yeah, it's good to uh, catch up. Uh, catch up uh, online mate so quite possibly the most important question for our conversation what's your coffee
1: order Oh my coffee order it's funny that you mentioned coffee because every every classroom yeah, every classroom that I've worked in within a week my kids know that how the day is going to pan out depends on if mr. Young has had his coffee so, it really ranges, man. Um, I, I do love my coffee. I wouldn't say I'm a coffee snob. Some people might label me that, but uh, I yeah. just like a good cup of coffee. Um, normally in the morning, I'll have like a um, grounded coffee in my nice. dress, just nice and black. Um, I like that kind of oily texture. But yeah. apart from that, throughout the day, I'll have espressos, maybe, maybe a flat white or I don't know if you've had it, Matthew. It's um, a Vietnamese style of coffee. They call it, um, I'm going to butcher it, so I'm not going to, going, to, going to attempt to say it. We'll just go
0: with Vietnamese um, coffee, yeah?
1: yeah. Vietnamese iced coffee, and it's the most strongest thing you'd ever have. Like If you want a real kick, drink that, man. <laughs> so where can I get my
0: hands on some uh, great Vietnamese iced coffee?
1: Um, you can go to uh, anywhere in Cabramatta. Right. There's, a, there's a famous cafe joint called Cafe No. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely mispronouncing it so I, I apologize <laughs> to every Vietnamese teacher that's listening. yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but that's that's the one I'd probably go to and you can find those in Kenny Heights in Cabramatta fantastic well that that
0: I uh I don't currently work in southwestern Sydney anymore um yeah. and that's one of the things I miss is the food oh. and culture and the incredible yeah. where, where are you now Matthew so I am in, Catan, so it's sort of southwestern it. Sydney, but it. It, it, just, it just doesn't have that diversity. I mean, for many years, um, I was in southwestern Western Sydney um, around kind of Canley Vale. That was one of my last yeah. schools. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of miss that sort of incredible multiculturalism in the food. And yeah, I live in, I live in the Shire now. And so we're... Um, uh we've got a lot of hipsters a lot of people that try and do that Vietnamese <laughs> yeah. spring rolls in Miranda it's not really the uh it's not really the the dumb thing mate so it's really <laughs> yeah really something that I miss. but I'll have to check out the uh iced coffee it sounds yeah sounds awesome but mate what is something that is still on your bucket list what are you are you a bucket list guy are you a goal-setting guy what's something that you really want to do oh
1: I I find that sometimes like I know there's theories out there or like yeah. uh, I guess studies out there that say that when you write something down it usually gets done but I don't know if I'm I i do not know if that's me yeah. I I tend to also just go with things on the flow but geez on my bucket list oh is there I somewhere that you want to travel somewhere that you haven't been I do before? I do want to travel um I love the Italian culture and I've I've actually yeah. never been to Italy or, or Europe in, in saying that wow. uh, um so I definitely would love to go to Italy and uh try their food their uh <laughs> their beverages nice <laughs> i'm a huge mcgrini fan i'm hopefully i'm allowed to say that on your podcast <laughs> okay Wor- worst things have been said don't worry about it <laughs> um but i'm a huge i do want to go back to um and travel around southeast asia and just try all the street food as many as i can and fantastic yeah so what? <laughs>
0: <for
1: me? laughs> am i allowed to ask about you like do you have something on your bucket list yeah, that,
0: that's a good question. I mean, um, there's so many things that fascinate me. Um, um, I, at the moment, I'm just getting into, um, thanks to my beautiful wife, just getting into reading a lot more fiction than I ever have done before. Yeah. Um, I uh, just finished um, an amazing book, uh, which name escapes me, which is shocking, but I'm sure it will come back <laughs> in a minute. Um, and, um, Yeah. So there's books that I want to read. There's people that I want to meet. There's discussions that I want to have. Um, And um, I look, I really want to go back to Europe and spend some time there. I was uh, born in the UK, spent a fair bit of time traveling around there. Um, Yeah. I want to do some trips with my kids. You know, they're kind of pretty little um, and we're kind of planning at the moment a a trip overseas um with them in a couple of years uh we don't want to spend all this money if they're too young to remember it so we're kind of <laughs> to it and get it right you know um yeah, yeah. But, um yeah really um oh just remember the name of that book um how to get rich i think how to get rich in thriving asia or something
1: oh okay I've never heard... um
0: i am just gonna look up the name so i don't butcher it um <laughs> but it's an incredible book and it's definitely not what i think so it's talking about these people this man in the the slums of uh, India that really um, makes a lot of money but then gets to the end of his life and realises that it's um, not what matters. And so it's a book that I would not turn down. I think it's How to Get Rich or How to Thrive in Rising Asia. I think I butchered that title, but I would highly recommend that, mate. I'll uh, I'll text you. Okay, yeah, yeah. That sounds
1: really interesting.
0: So, yeah, I'm kind of at a stage at the moment where I'm sort of a bit more... I don't know, a bit more philosophical, I think, than I was before, you know. <laughs> so I think I want to travel. Um I uh yeah, I would love to go to uh back to Japan.
1: Oh yeah.
0: um I, I spent a, a very short period of time in Japan, uh, but only in the um the city, like I mean like for a week, okay. like not even it's not even worth mentioning really, but um, I would love to go to the cherry blossom festivals. Um, I would love to travel out to sort of rural Japan on the Shinkansen and all of these things. So uh, I don't know. I've been fascinated with Japanese culture for a really long yeah. time. Um, so yeah, I'll uh, I'll send you a postcard, mate. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. I said, Daniel, I was I was just wondering, what was your um, what was your upbringing like,
1: and what are you most grateful for from your parents? Ooh, okay where do I start with this one um, so I was born born and raised here in Sydney in particular Western Sydney yep. uh, I guess direct nation yep and so I went to school and it was really it was I guess my upbringing was really interesting in the sense not, not really interesting not I'm not saying I'm interesting but yeah. um, when I attended primary school uh, my school was very it was um, there was a high percentage of Anglo-Saxon kids yeah. And I was like one of the few minorities, so that was really interesting growing up with them. And, but yet born uh, in Australia, but well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yet,
0: as Aussie as they come, uh, you know, yeah. like you born in <laughs> Australia. But did you sort of feel like that you were in some way different being within that school?
1: I did um, I think I was lucky in the sense because I know that speaking to a few other Asian Australians, like I know that they've experienced more racism than I ever have, and mm-hmm. I do. Maybe it's because I was oblivious to it. I'm not too sure or um, I don't know if it was maybe direct or maybe I was just too stupid to realise it. But I feel yeah. like my childhood was, I adored my childhood and a lot, and I adored my friends at the time as well. And I had some fantastic teachers. Um, and one of the teachers that I remember fondly, her name's Apanapile, Pile. And I don't know if she's going to hear this podcast. She's she's still teaching now. And she's over at our neighbourhood Our neighbouring school, Bayanami Public, so she's over there, she's a fantastic teacher. And I don't know, I would say my primary school was awesome. And then it wasn't until I went to high school where then I, I was immersed in diversity. So you had your, I guess, a lot of your Asian Australians, then you had your Pacific Islander kids Middle Eastern kids, and I got to—that's when I got to really experience other cultures. Wow. But I've—I was always experiencing culture through food, anyway. Growing up in, I guess, Fairfield in the Cabramatta area, yeah. so you're surrounded by that delicious cuisine that oh. you wouldn't have. It. I'm getting <laughs> hungry, mate. I'm getting oh, hungry. <laughs> um, and I just remember always appreciating culture, and so I guess that was my upbringing. So I like to think that. I'm all rounded in that sense, in terms of cultural diversity. And I try to bring that into my classroom now yeah. as, as a teacher. Um, wow. Yeah, so I guess that was that was my upbringing. Something that I'm um, going back to, what am I grateful for in terms of my parents? I guess I'm grateful for them surviving the... So I'm, I'm, I'm Chinese Cambodian, but my parents grew up in Cambodia and they survived the Khmer Rouge, oh, the genocide. So it was a... It was, their stories it, sometimes it does tear you up and the things that they had to go through especially my grandma and uh, she's definitely one of my inspirations and uh, I'm just grateful for them for surviving really and just moving to Australia and having to do do it all over again learning a new completely new language working multiple jobs just to make sure that um, they had something to provide uh, both myself and my staff. and so I'm really I guess grateful for that. Well, that, that, that's so fascinating, Daniel, and there's
0: there's so much in there. I mean, I, uh, for many years, worked as the EALD uh, teacher in my uh, school uh, in Fairfield,
1: yeah. and
0: I, I, I found it so interesting to see how these students, many of which were born in Australia, many of which were not, were sort of juggling this kind of dual identity. So they had a person, not a person, they had an identity at school with their friends, yeah, yeah. then they also had an additional identity at home and this sort of idea of uh, what the cultural capital that they bring to school. And and do you think that has sort of in your experience, do you think that has changed the way that you interact with your kids in your class? I mean, talk me a little bit about uh, talk to us a little bit about that, about how that's maybe had an influence in the way that you teach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think what I what I used to say to the to the kids, especially when I worked in a school with like a rich diversity is I guess all the schools I have have rich diversity um, is that everybody in our classroom is special and not in the cliche kind of corny way, but in saying that if you, I always get the students to look around them and look how different we are. You all come from different, um, I guess, where well, your parents come from different racial backgrounds. So you yeah. have, when you come to the classroom, you bring different languages, culture, and your personal interests. And I think I like to I like to celebrate those differences with my students and get them to understand mm. that why would we all want to be the same? That's that's boring. Whereas when I have conversations with you, even as an adult, and I'm talking to you guys as children, I'm still learning something from you and your culture. And I celebrate and every now and then I might bring up the story of, or maybe not necessarily with the students, but with other teachers when we have, I guess gatherings like PL or whatever. Um, I like to talk about how when I was a kid, going back to what I was talking about in pro- when I was in primary school, I would sometimes wonder, what does it actually mean to be an Australian? And that was always a confusing aspect for me when I was a child, mainly because, I guess, especially in the curriculum at the time, you think most of it, I don't remember learning about Aboriginal culture. Yeah. What we would be introduced to, especially in history, Wow. Was like James Cook founded Australia. Same, that's all, that's all I remember. And, and then when you, as you grow up, you think you see things like on Australia Day, well, being Australian, our culture is barbecue on Australia Day and getting absolutely trashed with our friends. <laughs> um, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, whereas especially now, as, as a teacher, I have this newfound respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. Absolutely. That for me to understand what it means to be Australian, Deep down in the heart is to understand what is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Strait Islander culture, and then on top of that is all the other cultural diversities that we have, and that what that's what it means to be Australian. So yeah, look, Uh,
0: I I think that's that's so incredibly important, and there's so much um, in there. I mean, the conversation that I'm that my wife and I currently having is that we have two uh, girls, two mixed race girls. Um, my wife's Indian, South African. Um, I was born in the UK. Uh, we did their passports quite recently because of COVID. We haven't been anywhere, but it raised a really interesting question. They're the only sort of quote unquote proper Aussies in our family. Um, and so what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to juggle these? And it's not just two identities. It's not just a, an English identity and a, whatever that means, yeah, and a, South, yeah. a, a South African, um, Indian, South African identity and Australian identity. It's this constant, I guess, mixtures of, of, of and, and these re-evaluations of what it means to be Australian. And yeah. I sort of quite naively had never thought about that. I mean, I'm a white middle class male. Like, like I, my sort of cultural experience is very different to so many other people. But all of a sudden, for me, having girls, especially mixed race girls and and talking to them about these issues is is so it should be quite sort of forefront of our discussions. Um, And so we even had a conversation about girls daycare. They're celebrating Nelson Mandela Day because it's a significant um, day um, in my wife's family um, and also a a really important, I guess, cultural event. Um, But I mean, we yeah, I mean, what does that mean, I think, to be Australian is so important. And, and you, I think, being in class are, are really at the forefront of that because you have this, your own, your classroom is its own ecosystem, if you like, its own sort of cultural um, epicentre. Um, and I think <laughs> it's yeah, really, uh, really lovely. Um, so what does, how did you get to where you are today? I mean, why did you go into teaching? Um, was it the influence of your primary school teacher um how did how did you get here because you've dedicated your career to to really serving some of those um uh those really deserving students in your school so yeah how did you get here
1: oh well um it's a very long time I, I wouldn't say that I wasn't up until I guess um in primary school I guess I was you would, I was a I would say a good student high school started um I just, I don't know, like up until I would say year eight, I was probably still a good student, but then I started losing, I guess, the purpose of what does it mean to be a good student. And that kind of got lost because I feel like some of my experiences there weren't so positive in the sense that I was always one of those teenagers that was a little bit lost in life. And I guess growing up with, I guess you My parents, I wouldn't say that they were typical Asian parents, but they still wanted me to be successful and study hard. But then that's the thing. When you, I feel like when you tell young people, oh, study hard and you'll be successful, but how, what does that mean? Hmm. Because especially in this day and age with with these, these young kids who have a lot of pressure from their parents to do, to be successful or the communities to be successful, but but what does that actually mean? If I'm going to study hard, does that mean that I automatically become a doctor? Do I become an engineer or a lawyer? And that was a that was a typical path. And I, I believe that it's because that a lot of for refugee parents, and I can only speak for, I guess, Asian Asian parents, is that that's the quickest way to become successful. And I guess for maybe bragging rights as well for some. Yeah.
0: Okay, um, cool. But yeah. I think when you consider what your parents went through to get here sort of makes sense that there would be this either overt or direct or indirect pressure to 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 do something with it you know yeah
1: yeah
0: and not that that is necessarily academic but I think if you it's easier to to measure academic success not necessarily yeah that's right but did you did you experience that did I mean did your parents ever put that pressure on you or or did you sort of feel this sense of I need to do something with this opportunity that i have been given if you like to be in
1: Australia. I wish I wish I I wish I was able to to understand what they went through because I actually didn't un- deeply understand the trauma that they suffered until yeah. I was older and having those conversations so I, w- I wish they did sit me down and talk to me about it right. uh, but the pressure did didn't really come from mum and dad it came more so from my grandma who was very yeah. academically driven and she put that she did put that pressure on me um, and I don't think I just had it in me. I didn't, or maybe I did, I don't know, but, I'm, but I think I just didn't understand the why. So then I started becoming a bit of a, I don't know, I wasn't a troublemaker, but it, maybe I was like disengaged with a lot of in terms of the classes that I went through. And I guess I remember one of the, there was one particular teacher that um, I remember who said to me once that, um, it, I think we were on camp at the time. And, he pulled me aside and said, Look, if you don't want to do anything with your life, then don't, then don't influence the, the other kids that do. So, this, te- this particular teacher played favorites, right? And so, I, I remember that even <laughs> being a young 14, 15 year old kid yeah. at the time, saying to myself, If I was to ever become a teacher, I'm not going to become like you. And I will make sure that our, all the students that are in front of me, um, I guess, to, to use a department's quote, known, valued and cared for. And that's, that's, I think, is really important because I know that sometimes as teachers, we can get a little bit annoyed with certain kids in our class because of the way that they're behaving or, or whatever. But sometimes there's always, not sometimes, there's always... A background story to that for why mm-hmm. I guess that's our job to try and figure out what's going on here. Yeah. Um, but so I, I didn't I didn't start off with teaching. I I was one of those. I continued my disengagement <laughs> after school, and jumped around to many different courses. I think I started off with um, architecture. Realized quickly. Realized no, that's not my thing. And then I ditched that and then um, applied to study <laughs> accounting. Out of all things, realized I hate maths. Um, so now I'm going to change that in case Mr. Wu's listening. So it's not that I, I, I was just, it wasn't my thing. I remember sitting down and then the uh, the professor was like showing me, showing us the class some some formula. And I was like, what the hell is going on here, man? And I was I realized no. And then did multiple jobs. Uh, I think I was a wedding I was a wedding performer at one, one stage. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> wasn't really good. Uh, so I don't know why they even hired like me. a singer or a
0: dancer?
1: Or uh, no, no, definitely not a dancer. So um, I, I consider myself an average musician, a failed average musician. So I guess a singer and I, I play guitar to accompany the vocals. Um, until I met some friends that, um, that, were, that were teachers or starting to become teachers. And then I think I always had it in me because deep down inside, I always loved helping people and I think I have a, a very strong empathetic approach to, to the people around me. And so I, th- I think that naturally helps. And so I started venturing into and I, and by that time I was a little bit older than I guess the typical uni students. I was around maybe 19, 20. No, how old was I? 20, 20 something. I don't know. Uh, maybe mid-mid twenties. And then I realized that I st- I loved, I actually loved learning about what teaching actually means and realize wow it's actually not what i thought it is wow. So it's, you know delivering content you've got to facilitate things you've got to you've got to create opportunities for these young people in front of you you've got to inspire them yeah and i think that's that got me buzzing and I it's great and then that's how that's how i eventually ended up here <laughs> wow that's really interesting
0: um and I think what it, what is so wonderful about our profession is one of the many things that's so wonderful is that nothing really goes to waste. Um, and like you've, you've sort of, right. you've this sort of stint as a an architect or as a, as a trainee architect, maybe. <laughs> uh, very short stint. You, uh, you're a musician and we'll talk about some of the things that you do outside of school as well a little later. Um, but there's all of these different passions and these threads that make up who Daniel is. Um, and it's really interesting that in our job, in our profession, those things don't go to waste. I mean, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you do kind of outside, some of the interests that you have outside of school. And I wanted to talk about uh, Grand Seiko. And the reason why I did it is because you got um, featured. This is not just a quote. This is a full feature. And I'll put all of the links in the show notes in one of my favorite um, uh, platforms of all time, which is for Dinky. And I just wanted to quote you, and I want to talk about um, uh, your um, passion for for watches and also this sort of pursuit of improvement. And I quote, one of Daniel's favourite things about Grand Seiko is the brand's never-ending pursuit of improvement. And you say, it reflects my own personal life in terms of being a teacher. You're always getting your kids to try and say there are ways to improve. Never take no for an answer and never stay comfortable. So how does your relationship with Grand Seiko uh, influence um, your teaching and why is it important that we are not only continuing to improve, um, but also that we never take no for an answer and never stay comfortable?
1: Oh, okay. Big question. Yeah, I just, I remember sacrificing many holidays and (laughs) to buy my first Grand Seiko watch from Japan. And I want everyone to know that I am not a materialistic person. However, I do appreciate art and I like to approach, I guess, the watch collecting world. I'm more of an enthusiast, but I like to approach it as the way art people collect art. Mm. And um, one of the ways that Grand Seiko inspires me as a brand is um, the whole Japanese philosophy behind what Kaizen means and what Kaizen means. is continuous improvement and i guess in, in our profession that's something that we should live by or, or perform by in in the sense that try to be better than yesterday and i think the the brand represents that and it's not ju- it shouldn't be just that like that whole philosophy behind behind kaizen and that grand seiko approach um you can see it in other professions that you need to be able to improve your performance otherwise otherwise the the competition will I guess will out will surpass you. You can think of chefs in the kitchen who run restaurants, especially in Sydney, where it's a huge food scene. If you don't, if you don't continuously try to improve, then your comp, your your restaurant's not going to survive because you've got so many competition out there that's probably offering the same thing that you are, but it could be better. Maybe they, there's better produce. Um, so I also like to bring in that approach towards teaching. But I guess in terms of why I do adore the brand Grand Seiko or Seiko in general is that they're always trying to make their products better and that's an interesting philosophical approach to to teaching and what I try to bring into my practice. So what are some like
0: on teaching then what are some of the things that you have tried or what are some of the things that you've tried to innovate or some things that have worked or things that have failed in your teaching profession?
1: Oh God, um, so when oh, I, there's
0: so many, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think I think that if there's an educator that that says that they haven't failed, probably isn't very good in the classroom. Um, I when I think of failure, I like to think of I don't really like to think of it. I cringe. I cringe in my first year of teaching. One of the things that you never ever do, and, and if there's any first year out teachers listening to this podcast right now. Please don't try to be their friend. And I'm not sure why I employed this approach. It's not really me, but I did it anyway. And so I, I tried, I don't I don't know if it was me trying, being a, a teacher that, a first year out teacher, trying to maybe being scared of students not liking you, but that's just part of the job. You don't want them to like, you want them to respect you. Yeah. And I try to make them, not try to make them, I try to get them, try to be, have that friendship approach which sounds kind of weird right now but i tried to be their friend which was the most stupidest thing i could have done so i think back and that was the biggest mistake that i could do because that only lasts for a short amount of time and they could like you but do they respect you that's a different story so that's one stupid mistake that i made so 1st year out teachers please avoid that <laughs> learn from me um and the second the second one i would say was I'm not. Look, this is this is still controversial and I understand, but I'm I'm not a believer in extrinsic rewards, and I think I was just trying to mimic what my previous prac teachers were doing. Unfortunately, I didn't get much experience as a casual teacher, and I actually think I met you, Matthew, as as a casual teacher, I and so. um, I I used to have this dumb dumb reward system where if they would do something good, then it would add up to points would accumulate and then by the end of the the week that would get some kind of reward, which was the most, I think back and I'm like, what the hell were you thinking, man? By my second year. And thankfully, um, by by the way, if if for some reason, there's any of my, uh, if any of my ex students are listening to this podcast, listen to a bunch of teachers talk about things, I am sorry for your experience. (laughs) It's funny because in that sense, um, my principal at the time said I did I did a pretty good job and look there were there were kids that still adored, adored me I think based on what they were saying and I'm sure that there's kids that I didn't get on my side which is absolutely fine and for those kids I apologize but um, for luckily for me because I worked I used to work in a very small school of about I think it was 120 students at the time and um, I I met. The class was a year five and six class combined. So I managed to have those year five kids follow me into year six and so now I had that experience of what not to do under my belt. And how I knew I was doing the right thing in the second year was the kids were saying, oh, wow, Mr. Young, you're really different now. You're very, you're, you're strict, you're firm. But at the same time, you're very fair and we really like you now. That's I'm great. Like, so that's a good thing. Yeah, I think um, so. I would say that's there's I'm sure there's many mistakes that I've that I've that I've made throughout my teaching career, but I would say those two are the most wow the things that I remember the most that I burnt deep inside my memory. So don't be their friend because you want you're gonna lose the respect you want them to respect you. And the second thing is for me, I'm not sure about I don't want to bash on any other teaching philosophies out there or approaches, but I think extrinsic rewards are absolute I'm not going to swear so I don't I don't agree with them I just don't agree with them these kids should feel good when they've achieved something because there's nothing that makes you feel better when you've learned something something that you couldn't do before yeah that's addictive and that's what we want our kids to to feel so what what are you most um what are you most proud of oh what am I most proud of I guess um those small those small things that teachers often tend to overlook, um, I know that there's all these massive awards that you can achieve. You've got your Principal Network Awards and you've got these Commonwealth things. But going back to the whole extrinsic thing, look, they're, they're fantastic when you get them and, and congratulations to everyone who, who gets them. I know they're not easy to get. But for me, I guess as someone who's a little bit more experienced now and a little bit more mature, I always go back to things that I'm proud of. Are there's little moments that you have with your kids when they're so they trust you. So winning, winning the students trust to the point that they share these these things with you that they no, don't normally share with other teachers. Um, but any time a kid, any time a learner can't, they struggle with a concept, and it took weeks and weeks of like, and and maybe like conferences that with those with those children until they you can see that, that that smile on their face and they finally can do it and they tell you Mr. Young like thank you so much because I get it now and it's because of you yeah that's that talk about a dopamine hit man that that's that's a that's one of the biggest dopamine hits ever yeah and yeah, I would say that's something to be proud of great yeah I
0: think that's um that that's so important and I think sometimes we can um we can introduce all of these new programs and they're Mm. wonderful and all of this stuff. But I think at the end of the day, um, I love the quote, and I don't know who it's attributed to, but it says that um, people won't remember what you've taught them. they'll remember how you made them feel. And I, I think about some of my amazing teachers. Um, One of them was Miss Taylor Jones, who Mm. I had the privilege of having on the podcast a little while ago. Um, I don't remember what she taught me, I've no idea. I've no, I've, I've no idea how she taught me how to read or how she did, how she taught me how to do maths. I have no idea. But I know that every time I went into her class, um, I felt safe and I felt like I was the most important person in the room, um, even though there were 35 other students. And I'm sure everyone felt like that. And so I think sometimes we need to remember that um, our connections with our students are the things that truly make a difference. Um, Absolutely. That, it's so wonderful to hear um, to hear you talking about that, and obviously uh, people can't see the video, but it was really great to see your face light up when you talked about some of the <laughs> conversations that you've had with our, with students, which is amazing. Um, Daniel, I did just want to um, ask you a little bit about your poetry. So we've talked. There does seem to be a, um, and if you don't want me to, I'm happy. I'm happy <laughs> to right. again. Um But there, there right. does seem to be a. There seems to be a pretty consistent thread here whether it will be uh being a a a wedding singer um (laughs) uh, doing songs uh writing poetry uh talking about kaizen so um i'm not sure if you're still actively writing poetry but but why is that process meaningful to you or why was it important
1: yeah um so i still write poetry i just don't post it on social media as much anymore um i would love to release some kind of book that (laughs) a collection of my my thoughts Um, so poetry uh, I like to I like to write it because that's one way that I can channel what I'm trying to process maybe it's something that I've that I've recently learned and I'm trying to process that into my own way which is poetry it tends to be that way Um, it's a good way to process how you're feeling whether it's a happy feeling angry feeling maybe you're angry at the situation that the world is in right now so I think that's a good way and I guess in my classrooms, poetry is a huge thing. Um, where I used to get uh, kids from more different, um, I guess ability ability levels to try and write something and try to break away from that thought that oh, poetry is for old white guys, <laughs> but it's not. It's not that at, at all. Poetry is for everybody, especially I like to introduce them to different like forms of poetry, especially spoken word or or, uh, poetry slams. Um, And some of my big inspirations are people like uh, Taylor Marley. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Uh, Yeah. So he's a huge inspiration of mine. Um, Sarah Kay, who's also big in America. And I think this guy named pages Matam. And I like the way that they process their thoughts and their feelings into that creative format. And I like, and what I, I became more interested in poetry, especially actually through through teaching it in, in class, and especially seeing a lot of my um, refugee ill uh, students and and some of my um, First Nations students as well, where they would write these things because it doesn't poetry. The great thing about poetry, it doesn't follow a specific structure like English does, where you have to have the punctuation and subject and you know. Um, where you can just write, just quickly write, and then you can edit later how you want it to sound. And for me, that's one quick way of processing things. And then um, I like to think that my poetry got in, has improved since the first one that I wrote. And I think that's that's one way. And sometimes I like to share it with the students at, at school as well. And um, But then you never know how it, how good it really is because usually your, your students are, are very positive. <laughs> and it's, it's sort
0: of... Um it's sort of not the point as well you know Mm. like it it kind of doesn't matter and then I think like I'm a huge fan of doing things just because you're into them Um, and and I love that we can engage in things that don't necessarily and I'm not saying this is the case with you with poetry but I I love that there are things that we can engage in that don't necessarily move us towards a goal or have a it's not like you started writing poetry because one day you want to become a travelling poet. It's just there because it's something you may well be. Um, but it's actually just there because there's this enjoyment in creating. Um, it doesn't sort of have a financial gain. Um, yeah. and, I, and I love that. And do you find that having kind of a... You've got the things that you do at work. Yeah, yeah. You find like having a, a life or having an
1: interest outside of work is really important to you? Absolutely. Um, so going back to especially because you were talking about how, how you love Japanese culture. Um, I read somewhere, I, I can't remember where I read it from, but it was talking about the um, the Japanese warrior. So I guess the mm-hmm. samurai at the time. And what I read that, like, I guess, a cultured, a cultured person. And I think what they were saying was that they shouldn't just be a warrior. They need to have a life outside of, I guess, being a soldier and one of the ways that they would do that is through i guess like artistic formats such as painting wow. or writing poetry and because i always as much as i love painting i just don't have the time to sit down and learn those skills where for me uh, my art form or one of my art forms is writing poetry for fun and it's almost the same as painting i like to think of it as and i always tell my, my students this that we are creating art but we're not creating a visual form of art. Instead of using the different color palettes, what you're using are words. And you're putting these words together to create your art. And I like to think of myself as an artist, a self proclaimed artist in that sense. Yeah. That, um, that's another, I guess, um, how can I say this? Another aspect of myself that I like to work on. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's, yeah,
0: really interesting and is. I think hobbies are uh, hobbies are such an underrated yeah. thing. And also I think the word hobby could even be patronizing because it sort of um infers a um Yeah, I know what you mean. I, know. I, d- I don't know. <laughs> but do you ha- is there anything else that you do? I mean, do you, like I know I I, oh. I run, I love running. Um I, are there any other things that you do that you think really um contribute to yourself?
1: Oh um uh i'm i'm just a a guy that's interested in everything and i'm kind of like a i don't know i'm just like somebody who's chasing things and i wouldn't know what to do if i actually caught that thing yeah yeah um so i get that i i'm one of the things that i'm really passionate about as well is our fitness um so you're talking about running um, i'm really into um something called calisthenics i'm not sure if you've heard of yeah so i'm really into that um just to and I was, it's a big deal in my classroom where, especially we've had a, like a f- very heavy lesson, very heavy content lesson. Uh, and the kids, you can see that they're, they're starting to get, get a little bit tired or the mood's starting to go down. To raise up the energy, um, I like to do a bit of fitness and I've started introducing some basic calisthenics for, for kids. And it, it's quite cute watching them do dips on a chair. <laughs> um, so I think that's really important as well because, and I, I personally don't think that I'm not sure about the rest of Australia, but I think based on what I'm hearing, I think in New South Wales, we don't take PDHP serious enough in our schools, um, especially with the whole situation with um, rising, um, I guess, mm-hmm. obesity yeah. and all that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think one way that I like to link physical education in the classroom is that, and I, I like to like not just talk about it, but also lead by example and do do those exercises with the kids and show them that I'm having fun. I'm learning too. But the whole idea behind that, when you're, when you're moving, when you're constantly moving, it's also good for your, it's good for your mental health. And that's another issue that's happening, not just in schools with young people, but adults as well. Mental health is a huge crisis, Mm. especially in a lot of like different, a lot of first world countries, especially. Yeah, in third world countries, of course, and I think um yeah. one of the ways that we can try to combat that is to get people moving. Teachers, students, just get moving. And I think calisthenics for me is one of those one of those ways. Like because you know there's there's science involved in this, man. When you're when you're sweating, you're releasing like dopamine, and that's endorphins, and that's important. And you can see it clearly that after after a ten minute workout with the kids, they're talking, they're buzzing, they're happy, they're moving. And then, and then we can try to settle, but settle them back down and, and mm. continue on with the learning. So yeah, I think I, that's I, like, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And Daniel, you seem someone like someone who is endlessly passionate and inquisitive. And was there ever a time that you thought, Jesus this is a bit too much"? I may have taken. I may have. Maybe I should have pursued that architectural. Degree. <laughs> but is there? How do you stay? Yeah. Sorry. Have you ever experienced yeah. that? Um, and how do you? Stay passionate.
1: Um, I, I that definitely, I, I've definitely been through times where sometimes you feel, I guess, that you're not acknowledged enough. I know that, I know that there was a time where I felt like it was almost like you're a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. Then you move to a big world where nobody really knows you. Maybe they do. I don't know. And um, and that there were times where you feel like oh, am I, am I in the right profession? Am I getting bored? Is this the reason why I'm feeling like, feeling like this? And I think that comes down to the whole idea of who are you, which kind, who are you surrounding yourself with? And sometimes, and I know that there's teachers out there that have been working for 30 years in the same profession. And it really does go down to like, okay, I guess what's the purpose for me being here? Am I here to chase? I guess clout. I know that, that the whole edu celebs kind of thing is a, is a thing now. I've never actually heard of it until I became a teacher, and I say, like, "Whoa, is that actually is that actually a thing?" Or are we doing this for the right reasons, and that is for by by doing our children right? And so you've got to question yourself with that. And um, I know there were times where I felt like, "Oh, I want I," because another thing that I do outside of, outside of teaching sometimes I do some freelance writing and maybe it's, and most of the times it's for like industries way outside of teaching, nothing to do with education at all. And then there was a time where, yeah, there was a time where I thought, oh, maybe I could be, I could go into like journalism school or something and pursue journalism because that was also something, a dream of mine. But then I don't know, for me in my life, there's, it's almost like when I'm just about to give up, something major happens. And for me, it's, I've never, most of my career, I've been teaching stage three, so upper primary. And it was almost like until I started, got, I was like almost forced, not forced, but I was like selected to go into stage one. Mm-hmm. And I am so grateful for that because since then, and that was only last year. So this is my, my second year of consolidating that. I've fallen in love with stage one, man. And best, th- it's the best, I tell you. Uh, and I... I, I currently would, supervise yeah. stage two, so hopefully
0: they're not. Uh, that's, yeah. But it's true. And, and I, true. I remember that someone tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, I think I went from year six to kindy and I, yeah. no, oh, wow. I'm not a kindy teacher. But it was professionally, it was the best thing. But why, uh, why was that so meaningful to you?
1: It was meaningful to me because um, I'm not sure So I'm um, I hope that I can reveal this and hopefully, hopefully that's the case. So I teach at Parramatta Public School and we're a school that is very heavy on co-teaching. And I think that the co-teacher that I was put into, who's become a really good friend of mine, um, she's a very strong infants teacher. And being able to see how she teaches and, and try while learning at the same time allowed me to get better at that. And But, but really seeing... I was like you, Matthew, where I would say I'm not an infant teacher, I'm a primary teacher. That's where I'm that's where I stand out the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But sometimes, like every good practitioner realizes, sometimes being in discomfort is a good thing because that's where you learn the most. And it was, and I feel like the reason why I became, I felt like I was becoming stale or becoming bored was because I've been teaching stage three for most of my career. That's not good. That's not a good thing. You've got to move. And one of the ways to move was to go into infants and see maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am an infants teacher as well. And I guess primary school teachers, you should be teaching K to six (laughs) anyway. So being, I was grateful to be, to go to stage one and see that, you know what? You don't know everything. So what you've learned on stage three doesn't really work on stage one. It, It does. But you can only take some some of those aspects of it. And I, I pretty much felt like a beginning teacher. No, not even a beginning teacher. I felt like a practice student. Back to being a practice student and learning everything from scratch. Organization. How do you talk to young children? It's different to how you talk to those in year five and six and seeing how you how you program on stage one. Well, wow. I feel like, like you were saying, Matthew, uh, becoming... I've become a better teacher from that. I believe I've become a better teacher from that. And I know that if one day I was to return back to primary, those kids will benefit from that.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah,
0: that, Daniel, that's that's really, really great to hear. And I think there, there does seem to be this thread that sort of weaves itself yeah. in and out of your story. I mean, I think the thing that um, that kind of ties it all together is, going back to the quote in Hadinki, um it's you this sort of never-ending pursuit of improvement but I would even add to that that um, even just this trying of things that are particularly challenging or put yourself out there whether it would be doing interviews with people or whether it would be um, uh, doing uh, kinesthetics or trying things or writing poetry or this sort of do you think there is that desire in you to be trying new things and putting yourself in positions that are
1: potentially a little bit uncomfortable. Is that important to you? It is important to me. And uh, I guess one of the ways that I try to create opportunities for me to be in discomfort is to go and work out, Um, try and lift something that's heavy and suck at it. And I think that's okay. And I think a lot of people, especially in today's day and age where people are almost scared to look like they're, they're having trouble or challenges, or they're scared to, I guess, lose lose that reputation of always being good at something. And I think that's very dangerous. Um, we, uh, if we can go back to the whole, in, in the classrooms, you think of your, your children that, which ones are the ones that, that never challenge themselves? And it's usually, believe it or not, the kids that are always top of the game, top of the class, who are always achieving A's and B's in their reports, they're scared to go and try something different because then people will say, oh, wow, actually mm. they have a weakness. They're not revealing. And it's the same thing with teaching as well. Um, you get people saying things like, oh, but that's always worked for me. Sure, but how do you know that that's not the, that's the only one approach to things? You've got to try something different as well. Just like I had to remove myself from stage three and go down to stage one and realize how, how much I don't know and to see how amazing these um, infants teachers are. Now I've always I've always believed that the strongest teachers in your school are always put on to cater to. I've always believed that. Um, no offense to any stage three teachers out there. Look, I used to be you, but I feel like until you come down to cater two, that's where the real teaching begins. And man, did I, <laughs> did, I did I experience that? <laughs> but Daniel, just as we uh, sort of
0: move to a close like i said i want to be respectful of your time i know it is school holidays and there's plenty of other things you could be doing Um, so i'm incredibly grateful but um what currently has your attention what's currently something either personally or professionally that you're sort of beginning to be a bit inquisitive about something new something are you going to start a hip-hop dance crew or
1: something
0: I'd I'd, I'd be happy to join that
1: (laughs) awesome yeah I'd love to have you on board uh geez um okay if look if I could do anything in schools I would love to run like poetry workshops like I'm not a poetry expert or guru performer um but that's something that I love to do I've always had the idea where I love to go into like a a school that's, I guess, situated, like, because the Western Sydney suburbs is my home, raised here, born here, I, I love to do, country, like, give something back. And I know that there's a lot, we have a lot of refugees and um, new arrivals over here in Western Sydney. I love to do some kind of workshop to get these kids interested in, in I guess, the whole English subject mm-hmm. of things. Mm. Or just literature, literature, or to build po- to write poetry together and get them to that sometimes, and especially for those children where, and it reminds me of myself, I didn't have a mentor to start something where we have mentors for these young kids that need those mentors, because I feel like going back to the whole, oh, you've got to study, otherwise you won't be successful. That's not the case these days. Like you look at all, all the successful entrepreneurs in the world, most of them dropped out of either college or high school. Um, so there's always other avenues that, that you you can, I guess, yeah. use your talents in. that yeah. We don't need to go to, I guess, violence or crime or, or drugs or anything like that. There's always better ways to, I guess, use your talents because everybody's talented in something. Or sometimes we just need to nurture it and they need those mentors.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Daniel. And looking back... On your career, like imagine you're at the end of your teaching career um, and looking back on the amazing career that you've had. Um, what would you like your legacy to be? What would you like to be remembered for as a
1: teacher or as an educator? As an educator? Um, to be, it's this is going to sound kind of corny. <laughs> um, but I would like to... to to have those kids in my classroom um, know that, wow, Mr. Young was actually one of those teachers that believed in me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's as simple as that, really. I just want them to know that he he believed in us and he tried his best to, to I guess, to facilitate opportunities for us.
0: Wow.
1: Um, so that's, that's one way. And I guess for yeah. my colleagues out there, um, I guess somebody who, gave them the energy to continue pursuing the teaching career because i know that can be tiring especially in today's situations we've had industrial stubbages and all that and i I get that it can be a very challenging time right now for teachers but if i could be somebody that even to have a conversation like, like like we're having conversation right now matt Sorry, I just called you Matt. <laughs> you know what? Matthew is when I'm in trouble, so I'm glad that you called me Matt. <laughs> I'm going to call you Matt, man. All right. Thank um, you. Yeah, just um, somebody somebody who they could talk to and just revitalize their energy and passion for teaching. Really, that's that's all I want to do. Like um, um, sometimes I, I mentor like younger teachers out there and all I want for them is to realize that if you've chosen this career for a reason, yeah. Um, you definitely didn't choose it for the money um, and <laughs> you chose it for a reason. And if I could have some sort of time with you, I'll, all I would like to do if I was like a mentor for somebody out there was to make sure that you have this fire inside you to inspire other people. And if I can get that out of you, that's, that's all I want. And I think that's what leaders do. Amazing.
0: Well, uh, Daniel, I, I think you are well and truly uh, on the way to uh, to achieving that legacy, and and I am oh, I'm so grateful <laughs> to have um, somebody like you uh, in our profession who is a con. You're a constant source of inspiration. I love seeing all of the things that you get up to and the your <laughs> sort of eclectic passions that you have, from uh, watch collecting to poetry to uh, kinesthetics, and it's really really lovely to see so if no one else says thank you uh, thank you for everything you're doing for our amazing profession and um yeah i can't wait to uh to to see more of the work that you do and um yeah thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it thank, you,
1: thank you for having me